Open your Bibles to the book of Jude, if you would. The book of Jude. <clears throat> and uh, we'll identify the place we're going to read. I'm not going to have you stand and read tonight. We're just going to talk our way up to the text. And uh, so uh, we're going to just have our Bibles open there. And I want to just talk to you just a moment uh, about the book of Jude, the setting, and such as that. Um, I'm not sure that uh, how many have heard this album of songs, but about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, my son-in-law, who pastors out in Pampa, Texas, he put me on to some music that had been recorded by various gospel groups. In fact, there are 15 groups that recorded 15 newly discovered songs and hymns by Fanny Crosby. Did you ever hear that album? Yeah. And so somehow the, they came across some songs and hymns. Some of the songs had not yet been fully completed. Some of them, the music was all written. Some of it, it lacked some. And so whoever it was that got a hold of these, distributed among these groups, and then they all got together and put their recordings together and put it on one album, which is just a blessing to me. Now, if Fanny Crosby heard some of the background music behind some of her music, she'd probably roll over in the grave, you know, as they say. Uh, and I don't care for some of that either, but in terms of the beauty of the songs and the messages of the songs, uh, I've just been blessed by them over and over. I love listening to them. I learned or memorized several of them myself that I know you'd like for me to sing tonight, but I'm not going to. Uh, so anyway, one of the songs, the second verse is, and the name of this song is Sheltered uh, by His Love. And the second verse goes like this. It says, now I rest in his devotion as he holds me like a child. And I feel his gentle comfort, though the world is growing wild, is what she said. Um, I, 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 he holds me like a child. And if you live long enough as a believer and been through some of the trials of life, you probably know what it is to feel like God's got you in his arms and he holds you like a child. And um, then she said, and I feel his gentle comfort, though the world is growing wild. Now that got my attention. And I'm thinking to myself um, about the condition of the world in which we live in, our own culture, our society, the world. And I'm thinking, I wonder what it was in Fanny Crosby's day that made her add these words to the song, uh, though the world is growing wild. So I got to thinking about it. She was born in 1820, died in 1915, about a month before she would have been 95 years of age. Wrote several, over 3,000 songs that she wrote. Many of them were blessed by to this very day. So I got to wondering what time of her life might she have written this in that made her add these words, though the world is growing wild. Being born in 1820, it would appear to me, now I can't prove this, I've never read it anywhere, never even researched it, I'm just thinking out loud here, uh, that if born in 1820, she could have very well been in the very prime of her songwriting, her poetry, work, uh, during the time of the Civil War. 
And during the time of the Civil War, and we have to remember how news would have traveled at a totally different rate or pace than it does today, but the news that they would get and what they would hear of the battles and Americans killing Americans uh, just upon thousands upon thousands and how sad and pathetic it was, she might have thought like most of the citizens of the country might have thought, the world is growing wild. They may not have had an idea of what was taking place in Europe or in uh, the Asian uh, continent or South America, but they knew that in their own country, as far as they're concerned, the world is growing wild. Uh, You know, during uh, this time that we've been through here in the past couple of years, I've heard over and over about how we are living in these unprecedented times. Every time I hear that, I want to say, why don't you just say, I don't know anything about history. These are unprecedented times. Well, they may be unprecedented in your time or my time, but if we don't know anything about history, these are not unprecedented times. Uh, Pandemics are not unprecedented. Confusion and social chaos, it's not unprecedented. And anti-growing, anti-Christian sentiment, that's not unprecedented. And so there are people that look at the situation today and with fear and great alarm, and they talk about these unprecedented times. I want to assure you of one thing tonight. You would not, and I would not, have any desire to trade places with Jude and the times in which he lived. No way. No way. Uh, They lived under the authority of the Roman Empire. You have to understand that as Jude wrote this, Christians were suffering because they were Christians. Uh, Martyrdom had already begun. And uh, uh, you might recognize this name. Nero would have been the emperor of Rome. And when you think Nero, you think the ultimate wacko, actually, when you think about Nero. And they're ruthless and despised and hated Jews and despised and hated uh, those that believed in this Jesus of Nazareth and despised him. And their life was tough. Their life was tough. And on top of that, Jude, in writing this book, is writing when there was confusion among the saints because there was the spread of a lot of error and heresy, false teaching, false doctrine. So when we look back at the time that Jude wrote this, we have to understand that uh, like Fanny Crosby felt, the world is growing wild. If you'd lived in the world that Jude lived in, you might have said the world is growing wild. And there have been uh, obviously many times through history when uh, it seemed like the world was in utter chaos and what in the world is it coming to and what are we supposed to do? And Jude, writing when he did, you know, he started off and he wanted to write what appears to me, and now this is my understanding of it, he wanted to write a devotional letter. He said, brethren, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation. So what does that mean? I wanted to write to you of the common salvation. Well, he's writing to the beloved. He says so in verse number one. So that would be people that knew salvation, the, the beloved 
It has to do with those that are loved ones of God, those that are in the family of God. Like I would say, I'd like to introduce my beloved wife, or I'd like to introduce our beloved children, or better yet, our beloved grandchildren. And and so we know that when we talk about family, we're talking about our beloved. Those are our loved ones. We often say that. When you read the term here, it has to do with those that are the loved ones of God. And Jude wants to write to the loved ones of God about the common salvation. This wasn't meant to be an evangelistic letter. He is going to write to them of the common salvation. The salvation that was common to all of them. The salvation that is common to all of us if we're saved. It's like I mentioned yesterday, I think it was, that uh, we, uh, all of us came to Jesus the same way. We came to salvation the same way. There's only, I mean, when the Apostle Paul got saved on the Damascus Road, well, that wasn't exactly my circumstances when I was six years old, but it took the same thing to save me it did the Apostle Paul and anybody else that's saved. So it's the common salvation. The, common, the salvation is common to all who are saved. If you don't have this salvation, you don't have salvation. See, and he wanted to write a letter about how wonderful it was to be saved. I don't know, Brother Bill, you pastored now for these number of years. Did you ever come to a time when you feel like you're just bringing the hammer down? Bringing, I, I've often thought, I would like to just preach some nice sermons as a pastor. Just be nice for a while. I remember Mother's Day and Father's Day roll around. It seems like I had the meanest sermons I ever preached on Mother's Day and stuff. And I say to the Lord, I want some nice sermons that make everybody go hug their mother. And everybody wipes tears and goes home saying, wasn't that wonderful? But no, no, I had to preach sermons like the woman that should have gone to hell and come back again. You know, that would have been Herodias uh, who asked for the head of John the Baptist and all that kind of stuff. Well, Jude said, I would like to write something soothing. I would like to write to you the common salvation, how wonderful it is to be saved. Come on, if you're saved, we could talk about that a while, couldn't we? But he said, I I couldn't. It was needful, rather, to write unto you. Look in verse number 3. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now, can I have your attention up here? When he says, I, I, I found it necessary to write to you uh, to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, whenever you read about the faith, what are we talking about? Well, you're talking about that body of truth that makes up Christianity, that body of truth that makes up the gospel. Uh, you're talking about that body of truth that we embrace, that we are supposed to be willing to die for, that which is fundamental to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why would Jude say, I wanted to write you the common salvation, but it was needful for me instead to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, contend. But it shows there's contention going on. Isn't that right? Why else would he say that? So it had to be that the faith was under attack. It had to be that there were those that were perverting, twisting, uh, violating truth, and they were teaching things that were not true as though they were true, and it was causing confusion and chaos and leading people astray. And Jude said, it's time that we earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And so I'm thinking about this day and time. I'm thinking about Jude. If we brought Jude back to the 21st century, you know, if that were possible, come on, use your imagination. We had him visit our churches across the land, that are churches indeed, and visit these churches. And then we said, Jude, you wrote a letter for your time. 
You've been across the country. You've seen church life in the United States of America. Write us a letter. I think he'd go this, get this one and just sign off of it and say here. Because what he said still needs to be said. What he was writing about is still as relevant in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. Amen, amen. I'm sick and tired of hearing all this stuff about the contemporary preachers that are doing their best to make the gospel message relevant. You can't make it relevant. God made it relevant. In every generation, every age, every culture, every society, every era, you and I do not have to try to make the Bible relevant. We're supposed to preach the Bible. God took care of that himself. And so Jude is saying you need to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, if you went down to verse number four, look there. For there are certain men crept in unawares. So you got a bunch of creeps coming in. Amen. Well, that went over good. But anyway, you got these men that are creeping in, and what are they doing? They're creeping in unawares, and what, what are they doing? Well, if you read verse number 4, we're not going to do it, but if you read verse 4 down through verse 19, here's basically what's happening. Can I have your attention here just a second? I like to look at it like this. Jude is pulling the cover off the false teachers and exposing them for what they are. Ungodly enemies of the truth. And so that's what he's doing. He is pulling the cover off. And there are those that every time you expose error, or you talk about somebody that may be a favorite TV personality, or radio personality, or a favorite YouTube personality, look at me just a second, you start exposing heresy as heresy, measuring by the Word of God, and there are people that get up in arms and say, you shouldn't criticize others, you shouldn't judge them. We have to. I said, we have to. We, have to. we are supposed to judge what is taught by the Word of God. By the Word of God. Not because I'm a Baptist and they're not. By the Word of God. The Word of God is the reason I am a Baptist, by the way. But I'm just saying, the main thing is measure it to the Word of God and you do have to pass judgment. And Jude knew that there were those that were teaching contrary to the truth. If you look through verse number 4 through 19, you'd find three basic things. Now watch this. I'll just give the, this little outline real quick. Uh, if you read verse 4 through 19, you'd see... Number one, false teachers exist. No matter how uh, unpleasant dealing with them is, they do exist, and they are not to be ignored. They do exist, and they're not to be ignored. Somebody say amen, and I can keep moving. Come on. Number two, it tells their motive. What motivates them? You put the book of Jude with the companion passage of 2 Peter chapter 2, and you see that what motivates them is covetousness. In other words, these aren't people that, whoops, we've stumbled in the truth. No, they have created a new path. They have created a new teaching. They have created something different so that they might gain a following after themselves for their personal benefit. See, now that's not my judgment. That's what the Word of God says. Look down at verse number uh, 16. Look down at verse 16 of Jude. These are, he's exposing the false teachers. He said, these are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Am I making this up or what? No, I'm not making it up. It was covetousness. In fact, Peter uses the word in 2 Peter 2, which is so much like the book of Jude, 2 Peter 2 is. And so, 
they are motivated by covetousness. A lot of the heresy that is on the networks and that is promoted across the United States of America and, and elsewhere, but a lot that is exposed to our people or our people exposed to is done for the sake of personal advantage, personal gain, covetousness. Okay, I can see the need maybe to stop and say, like the guy that comes on and says that he's been to heaven. I, well, last time I counted, it was seven times. He could have been three or four more times since then. And one time, uh, he, uh, he was there. It was about the third or fourth time he'd gone to heaven. And when he went to heaven, God was having a bad day. And he sat on God's lap and told him how great he was. And by the time he was done, God was feeling better about everything. Now, see, if that doesn't make you sick and want to kick the TV screen in, something's wrong with you. But here sat the big audience, the big audience, <laughs> clapping and praising the Lord, and he went to heaven. So why is he doing that? Well, I don't know. Coincidentally, he owns five jet airplanes himself. So I don't, I don't know that it's greed, but it's just, okay, you don't like sarcasm? Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's, let's be real about this thing. And so that's, that's what Jude said was taking place. So the, it says that they, are, uh, they do exist. They are motivated by covetousness and greed. And the third thing you'll see in verse 4 through 19 is they're in big trouble with God. They will be judged by God. Even saying, look down at this verse, watch this. This, is, this isn't bad introduction stuff. Look down at verse 14. And Enoch also prophesied the seventh from Adam. So Enoch, we're going way back. Somebody say amen. We're going way back to Enoch. Enoch was a prophet. He prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. What did Enoch say was going to happen? He's going to execute judgment upon all and convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Sounds like Jude and Enoch are against ungodliness <laughs> and not afraid to call ungodliness ungodliness. And he's saying Jude already, uh, uh, Enoch already prophesied of these that God is coming to judge the ungodly. See, So those three things are in verse 4 through 19. So that, is everybody still with me here now? So that if you just consider Jude, once he started exposing the false teachers and challenging the saints to earnestly contend for the faith, if you read verse 4 through 19, you would think, man, this is not a pleasant book. Uh, judgment upon the ungodly and identifying the false teachers as greedy and, and uh, deceivers and ungodly. Ungodly is used in there quite a bit. And uh, it goes on, look at the last verse he talks about them, this one alone. Look down in verse number 19. These be they who separate themselves. Jude's final words on them. They are sensual and they have not the spirit, is what he said. This is a harsh book. It's, this is difficult. It's got a negative tone to it. Okay. If Dave McCracken's here, he'd say, okay, crybabies. Uh, so <laughs> he would take us to verse number 20. Look at verse 20, because the whole tone changes. But ye, beloved, see how the tone changes? From railing 
against the ungodliness of the self-driven, covetous, false teachers and false teaching. Uh, As opposed to that, he comes and addresses the beloved. Now, excuse me just a second. In their world, the world was growing wild. In their theological world, there was an attack upon the faith. And Jude is writing to them and he says, But ye, beloved, what is he going to tell them? Whatever he's going to tell them, it lives in the Bible to tell us. What does he have to say to us? Look in verse number 20. But ye, beloved, watch, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You want to end on a positive note? Stay tuned. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Everybody ought to say, Amen. Amen. I want you to go back to verse number 21. I want you to underline these words if you're one that marks in your Bibles. Underline these words. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. See, in verse number 20 through verse 23, watch this, before he goes into the doxology there and is praising the Lord in the last two verses, in verse 20 to 23, can I have your attention? The heart of the matter is this, beloved, you keep yourselves in the love of God. That's what this is about. All that he said, boy, he's hard on those false teachers. He ought to be. I said he ought to be. And we ought to by the authority of the word of God. We ought to be on, on hard on false teaching and those that would propagate error. And, and so, well, he's really hard on them. Right. But when he sees that there is chaos and the, and the confusion, he says nothing about Nero. He says nothing about the oppression. He's not talking about the suffering like the book of First Peter talks about the suffering of the saints of that particular time. Is everybody listening to this now? Jude isn't necessarily talking about that. He's talking about the spread of false doctrine. And as he goes through this, he comes down to the end and he says to the saints of God, in the midst of any kind of confusion, turmoil, or any attack upon the truth, here is our responsibility. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what does that mean? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Because different people will say different things. Like the guy that I knocked on the door and he opens the door, and I had with me a Cedro Castillo, a member of the church at Bible Baptist, a Spaniard fella, and his work and everything was arranged such that he wanted to learn to knock doors and go soul winning. So I would take him out. And when I went out knocking doors, there were times during the day that Cedro would go with me. We knock on this door and I said, my name's Sam Davison. I pastor the church right down the street. I've got a brother that lives right on that street there right now. It's not far right down Jardo Street to Bible Baptist Church. Many of you have been there for men's advance and different things. And so, I mean, it's just right down there. And so... I said, I pastor the church right down the street here. And the guy leans up against the door jam, and he kind of folds his arms, and he gets this smirky look on his face. And so, you know, 
he's not necessarily happy I'm here. You know what I mean? You could just tell that. And so he folds his arms and he says, uh, I want to ask you something. You one of them that believe in, and then he got a kind of a snarl, once saved, always saved. You one of them? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay, so then it hits the fan, you know. So now we had this argument going. And so he is presenting all the typical cases to show that there's no such thing as eternal security. The security of the believer, once saved, always saved. That's ridiculous and absurd. And so he goes to the typical places. They that endure to the end shall be saved. Never mind the context of that verse in the book of Matthew and chapter 24. Never mind that. And then he goes to, ye are fallen from grace. Never mind what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 5, about those that are going to trust the law for salvation instead of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so if you trust the law instead of Jesus, then you have fallen from the grace of God, and you cannot be saved apart from the grace of God. Never mind that. That means you can lose your salvation. And then he opened his Bible, and the kicker, that was supposed to seal the deal for him was right here in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. There it is. Now, here it is, and I, I, I have to tell you, I can't stand illustrations where the preacher is the hero all the time. I can't stand those. But I was this time, so you just... <laughs> it really wasn't me, but I'm just saying... I had just finished a 13-part series through the book of Jude. I had memorized the book of Jude in the process of preaching through Wednesday nights through the book of Jude for 13 Wednesday nights. So I was fairly familiar with the book of Jude when he turned there. You know, I was just smiling on the inside already when he went there. And so I said, well, now, isn't that something? And he said, uh, yeah, that's what it says right there. And I said, I didn't realize how confused Jude was. Surprised it made it in the Bible. And he said, he wasn't confused. I said, he had to be. Because if you start in verse number one, uh, it says, uh, I am writing to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, the preservation of our salvation has to do with what? How good we perform? How well we do? No, it's who we are in Jesus Christ. See. So that's what Jude said to start the letter. And then you read with me those wonderful words at the end where he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, unto him that is able to keep you from falling, unto him that is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Okay, can I have your attention? If you and I don't fall from our salvation, who gets the credit for that? God does. Uh, if we are presented faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, who gets the credit for that? Come on, we know ourselves well enough to know we can't do that by ourselves. Then He's the one that is able. And that's why it ends by saying, To Him be glory and dominion and power both now and ever. Mm. Amen. See, it's because our preservation is in Him. Jude didn't get confused and say, By the way, if you're going to stay saved, it's up to you. Truth of the matter is, we didn't do anything for God to love us to begin with. God doesn't look down upon society, upon the world, upon the population, according to Psalm 14, Psalm 52, according to Romans chapter 1. God doesn't look down upon humanity and say, there's a lovable one there, there's, a love, there's this little farm kid out west of Perry, Oklahoma. He's a lovable little boy. Well, if God thought so, he was the only one. 
You know what I mean? My sister sure didn't think so. <laughs> and the house I lived in probably didn't. No, that didn't how God didn't look down and find those that were worthy of his love. Now did he? God commendeth his, Lord, his love toward us in that while we were yet, say it saints, sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were at enmity with God, alienated from God, separated from God, dead to God, He loved us in our sin. We didn't do a thing for God to love us. I love it how he describes it in Deuteronomy in chapter 7 when he's talking about the nation of Israel. And, you know, it's the kind of the repeat of the law in preparation to go into the promised land. And he's reminding them. It's a reminder. He is reminding them. Remember, Israel, the Lord didn't set his love upon you because you're more in number than any other people. Because you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. So why did God love Israel? Any reader of the Old Testament might really ask that question from time to time. Why did God love Israel? You know what the answer is? Because he loved them. Well, that's no answer. It is if God gave it. Why does he love you? I'm asking myself the question, why would God love me? I know me. Because he does. Because of himself. Not because we're lovable, not because the people that he chose to be his people were always lovable. No, that's not it. But because of himself. God is love. I said the scripture teaches, 1 John, just back up a few pages from Jude and you'll read it. For God is love. God loves us because of himself. I had no say whether God loved me then. I have no say whether God loves me now. He does, period, end of the story. Right there. But I do have say over whether I love God or the world. God or myself. God or the approval of others. God or money. God or stuff, God, or, or, or popularity, God, or the world. That's why John, the beloved apostle, wrote in that very same book I was referencing a minute ago. He said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. Love not the world. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote and said, set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. You know what he's basically saying? You make the choice as to whom you love. And the admonition that Jude gives us, listen to this, in light of the circumstances of the day in which he lived, the attack upon the truth, the confusion in the world, the anti-Christian uh, sentiment that existed in, in that time as well. He said, beloved, here's what you need to do. You keep yourself in love with God. I've made this statement, and so far nobody's argued with it. But I've said, for a child... Not to love their father, there has to be something really perverse and weird that's gone on for a child not to love their father. I don't remember anybody ever telling me, now, Sonny, you love your dad. You love your dad. You understand that? 
I sold I love my dad and nobody told me to, and I wasn't a very bright kid. <laughs> nobody ever told me to love my dad. I loved my dad. She loved her dad. She's the oldest of three. Her dad's a wonderful man. He went to heaven just a few years ago uh, at the age of just, just barely shy of 95 years of age himself and went on to be with the Lord, went to heaven. It was a wonderful man. She loved her dad. She didn't love her dad because they set her down every day and said, you've got to love your dad. Same with some kids right here in this room. And I got saved when I was six years old. You just think about when you got saved. Did somebody have to tell you to love God? I mean, when you got saved, you know what happened? Uh, on the authority of Romans chapter number 5, on the authority of Romans chapter 5, when you got saved, the love of God was shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost which is given unto you, and we are able to love God because He first loved us. And so because when we embraced His Son Jesus Christ as our Savior, then it says that Christ dwells within us. If any man not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So what happened is Jesus moved into our life, and it says, the Scripture says, that He shed abroad in our heart the love of God, which is given to us by the Holy Ghost, and that gives us the ability to love God. I'm submitting if you truly got saved, nobody had to tell you to love God. He just took away the guilt of sin. I said he just took away the guilt of your sin. He just took away the penalty of sin. He took away the condemnation of sin. He took away the judgment of sin. He, he, he set you free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. And somebody had to tell you to love him? But you do have to be reminded to keep yourself in love with God. Jude knows it. The Spirit of God inspired these words. I worked my way through Bible college in a cafeteria back in the day when a nice cafeteria was a legitimate eating place. Last few times I tried to take my lady to a cafeteria. She felt like she's being punished because only old people were going to cafeterias and there weren't very many of them left anyway. But back then, it was a big thing, and I worked in this very nice cafeteria in South Springfield. This would have been in 1964, 65, and 66, and I worked my way through Bible college there. And I remember one of the things I did, you know, extra for extra hours and everything, is uh, after they would have parties or, you know, companies would have meetings there and have lunch and everything, I'd clean up the meeting rooms or the big banquet room when they took all the petitions down, made it one big room, and I'd clean them up. And I can remember several times seeing uh, charts up in those days, not with all the technology and the fancy stuff we got now, but mostly on paper where you flip it, you know. And so I noticed that there were a few times that I saw charts that apparently were talking about uh, finance, uh, you know, profit and loss. And so they would go like this and up and down, you know, sort of like a profile of the mountains, and so it was up and down and up and down and up and down. And here we were in January and February. We were kind of down here a little bit, but when the spring came, our sales went up or down. And it didn't have to be sales. It could have been anything. I just noticed several of these charts up and down. And I thought to myself in considering this, what if God put up a chart of my life? Or God put up a chart of your life, and this is going to show the times you were most in love with God as a believer, as his child, and the times you were least in love with God. It was up and down, up and down, 
up and down. And, and it's amazing to me how God's people can look so innocent like maybe you. Definitely not me. But I, I, th- I feel pretty secure that this is probably what's happened to, to almost all of us somewhere along the line. That we've had our times where we we're really in love with God. And we've had times that our love was distracted. And it wasn't upon God. It was upon other things or other ones. I'll I'll confess to my own life. You know, you reach about those teenage years, and it seems like there are some challenges there that come. And I can remember, you know, a spring revival, and we'd have the preacher come, and it was a Sunday through Wednesday, uh, uh, through Friday, or maybe a Sunday through Sunday type meeting. And man, the preaching was hot, and I'd set up close where I could listen and hear the preaching. I loved it. And I'm just telling you, I'd go down to that altar, and I'd get these things right with God. And I can remember going to school, wanting to be the evangelist, to the school, want to talk to other kids about the Lord and such as this because I got right with the Lord and my heart was, man, I was way up here. I was in love with God. I loved the Lord. I didn't care who knew it. But through the process of time, you know, peer pressure, whoever invented that, it's so fortunate. Otherwise, we'd have to take responsibility for it ourselves. But now we can blame our peers. <laughs> yeah, so peer pressure would get me and my love would go down. Because I really did want to be accepted. I didn't want to be with George Rutherford, who was serious about the Christian life, a, a, uh, an Assembly of God kid in our school. He and I were about the only ones that we knew uh, that was trying to live a Christian life or cared. So I liked George, and he liked me. I went to church with him. They all started speaking in tongues when I was in about the eighth grade and scared the living daylights out of me. So I didn't go back there. Uh, they said it was tongues. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm just saying... I didn't want to be alone there. So my love for God went this way and my love for acceptance went this way. For those of you that are looking at me like, shame on you. Yeah, that's how I feel too. So this isn't a new feeling. Shame on me. But, you know, fortunately, uh, summertime came, we'd have youth camp. I'd go to camp and you go to Silver. I grew up going to Silver State Youth Camp. And so I go up to Silver State Baptist Youth Camp and Harvey Springer get up there. Harvey Springer, all he's got to do is walk in the room and you want to get right with God. You know, I mean, this guy's a big, tall, tough preacher, a man's man. I, I loved him. I respected him, looked up to him. Dan Allen would preach and Niall Buckley would preach and K.P. Smith, he was about this tall. Uh, Harvey Springer's about this tall. And K.P. Smith would preach and then Al Wells would preach. These guys would preach. And I remember by the time camp is over, even the times I went there when I didn't want to go but my dad made me go. Even times I didn't mean to get right with God. I'd come under the conviction of the teaching and the preaching and just what was going on there. And I'd go home and I'd be just sky high for the Lord. Man, I was on fire for God. I remember plowing all night before. If you guys ever did any plowing on the farm and my dad was a wheat farmer so he had some big fields, you know. And so he'd plow in the daytime and I'd, I'd plow at night. I remember coming home from camp and if you, if you have a good clean furrow, you could take those old tractors with no power steering or anything. You kind of lock them against that furrow just right and you could go for a quarter of a mile and didn't even have to touch the wheel. It'd just go. I've gotten off and followed the tractor before. But when I came back from camp, I didn't feel like getting off out in the middle of the dark but I, I, I'd actually stand up on the tractor seat. No cabs and all that kind of stuff. I'd stand up on the tractor seat and sing the songs of camp and try to preach like Harvey Springer. I don't know about my theology, but I was giving him fits, man. I was yelling and carrying on and screaming and losing my voice and everything, just having a good time. I can imagine the jackrabbits and the 
coyotes out there saying, what happened to our peaceful place here? I'm, but I'm fired up, man. My love for the Lord's way up here. Then school started, and they drug me down. I, they drug me down. No, I didn't keep myself in love with God. Other people became more important. I remember I was a senior in high school when her family came to church. They came to church. I saw her sitting up in the choir, standing there with about eight or nine other people in our little church in Perry, Oklahoma. And she's standing up there, and I'm sitting right about here. Well, actually, I was on this side then. I was sitting right about where you are. I'm looking up there at that girl, and I said, I'm going to marry her. Not like a conqueror, like, yikes, that's her. What was you doing, really seeking the Lord about a wife? Are you kidding me? I had three pigs, three sheep, several cows, a basketball, and a car, and a job. You think I was thinking about getting married? I had big stuff going on in my life. But she came in and joined the church, no fault to her. My sister finally introduced, you know, got us together. I didn't have the nerve to do it. Got us together. And I just, I mean... I lost my mind. About lost my job at the grocery store after school. I did. My dad said, Sam, I love Sandy. I really do. But you're going to have to get it together here, son. You're not doing anything I tell you to do. And we're, I'm not going to live this way. And I mean, I, she just, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. You know, I've never really asked her. She may have been manipulating, trying to sweep me. I don't know for sure. But it really wasn't her fault it, at all. But, but how she felt about me and how we were doing is far more important than how I was doing with God. It wasn't her fault. It was my fault. Now, come on. It may not be the same things that I dealt with back then, but I guarantee you there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of racket. Our flesh is weak. The appeal to the world is strong. There's a lot of noise to block out the voice of God and the Word of God and time with God. There's a lot of business. There's a lot of activity. There's way too much access to way too much junk that won't do anything for you spiritually. Somebody ought to say amen somewhere along the way. And I'm just telling you right now, the love for God can go this way. You didn't set out for it to. It happens. You know what Jude says? Don't. You need to keep yourself in love with God. Nobody can do it for you. You need to keep yourselves in the love of God. You accept responsibility. You had no say whether God loved you then. You have no say whether God loves you now. He does. But you do have a say as to where you are with the love of God. And we cannot deny the significance of this. I just read in my Bible reading about three days ago where the man said to Jesus, what is the first and great commandment? And what did he say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now hold on just a second. That's in the King James, so we may not be able to understand it. Oh, you can understand it. I said we can understand it. We know that's the first thing. And when Jesus was clearing the air of failure that hung over the disciples after the denial by Peter, the betrayal by Judas, and they all forsook him and fled, when he's got them together there with those fish by the fire, and they have eaten breakfast after they've hauled in fish after a night of failure at fishing, they're sitting there, and Jesus clears the air, and he says to Peter, Peter, now, Will you work as hard for me as you did in the fishing industry? Will you put forth the same effort for me as you did to catch fish? 
Will you deprive yourself of pleasures for me like you deprived yourself of pleasures to be a fisherman? That isn't what he said. That's not even close to what he said. What did he say? Do you love me? Three times. Do you love me? I'm saying we can't deny the significance of this. Of where we are in our love for God. I'm here on a Monday night. Okay, well, if you have that attitude, you may have issues with loving God. <laughs> if you're mad about being here. <laughs> no, uh, seriously. Well, I, I never miss a service, which is not the question. If you know how much money I put in the offering plate, which is also not the question. Well, I've worked hard at this church a long time. I've been a member here for a long time. I've done a lot of things. There's a lot of things I've done that people didn't even know I did, and on and on, which is not even the question. What he wants to know is, do you love me? And what Jude is challenging us to do is to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, am I keeping myself in love with him? Because we know we should. I'll try over here. We know we should. Amen. We know that. And it's easy to say, and it's easy to say we will. But what Jude did was tell us how it's done. How do you do that? Look in verse number 20. Look at it. There are four things he says here, and I'm only going to have time to mention two. And we'll end with just showing what the others are. But look here, verse number 20. But ye, beloved, look at this. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith is directly related to keep yourselves in the love of God. You keep yourself in the love of God by building up yourself on the most holy faith. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without developing a big argument, let's just get right to the point. If we're going to keep ourselves in love with God, then we're going to have to accept the responsibility to build up ourselves on the most holy faith by willful exercise in the word of God. There will be no building up on the most holy faith, excuse me, there will be no keeping ourselves in love with God if we are not in love with His Word. It's not going to happen. Unless we are willing to exercise ourselves in the Word of God, we are not going to keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, we haven't talked about it, but I'm almost sure this probably happened to you a time or two. It happened to me more than a time or two. Brother Sam, can we talk to you after church tonight? Sure. Yeah. My wife and I just need to talk to you. Okay, sure. I just started at 4.30 in the morning, so after church would be a great time to sit down and have a <laughs> That's the wine bag coming out of me right there. And so, yeah, sure. And so come in. Sit down. Sit down. After you've spent a while talking to folks and everything, sit down. Uh, Brother Sam, we are, my wife and I, we've been talking. And, well, first of all, I want you to know we love you. Oh, we thank God for you. 
Miss Sandy, oh my, we love her. Watch, goodness, and we love our church. We love our church, yes. Yeah. But we, we love you. Yeah, we've only been through the love stuff. Now, what's going on here? Well, tell him, honey, so she will. And if you think I'm saying that just to be cute, I'm not. Well, you're against women. Now I'm against weenie men. Pastor, we're leaving the church. We're just leaving. Oh, no. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And almost every time I said that, I meant it. Almost. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's very carnal. I shouldn't say stuff like that. But anyway, so, so we're leaving the church. Well, my goodness, uh, I didn't see this coming. Well, Pastor, we are uh, not being fed. We're just not being fed. Oh, you're not being fed. And I can remember, I, I felt so bad about that. If I would have been right here and somebody said, I'm just not being fed, knowing the effort that I was doing, the best I could at that particular time to preach, I just wanted to get, I felt so low I could crawl into the chair if I could just find my way all the way back and out the back door and just say, I'm doing the best I can, working like a dog, and I can't keep the people fed. I don't know what else to do. But you deal with that some. It's not like it happened all the time. It didn't. But enough, it doesn't have to happen much to seem like a lot. And one time I noticed that the people, I, I think the Lord helped me. You know, you seek the Lord and he'll show you things you're not seeing if you're not sincerely seeking the Lord. And he showed me that the three families or two that I had in mind that left that said they're not being fed and therefore they're not growing were about here. Now, you'll have to just accept this as as a pastor, and if you know your flock, this is, this is how it is, that they were about here and hopefully growing from where they were. And there are people that are here that are still growing under the same ministry. So if the people that are here are still growing under the same ministry, shouldn't people that are here be able to grow under the same ministry? So I learned to ask this question. Oh, you're not, you're not being fed. Well, I, you know, I, I hate that. You don't know how bad I hate to hear that because I really want to feed the flock and I do my best to study the Word of God. But let me ask you a question. Between Sunday and Wednesday, how much time are you spending in the Word? And between Wednesday and Sunday, how much time are you spending in the Word? Well, <laughs> whoa, well... <clears throat> Um, you got any water? Yeah, sure. Get some water. Here. Uh, how much time are you spending? In, well, uh, you, you may not understand how busy we are. I remember one particular individual made it sound like my husband has a real job. He's not a preacher, so he has a lot to do, you know. <laughs> and so I just kind of let that one go by. But anyway, how, how much time are you spending? Well, we, I mean, my husband and I have a, my career, too, and then the kids are involved in this and this and all kinds of stuff out here. They're involved in that, which is why they can't be involved in church life. Or the youth group, they can't because they've got them involved in all this more important stuff, uh, dance lessons and uh, every kind of sport that you can imagine. So there's no time for church activity. And so, yeah, but in our life, we, we, are, we are so busy, right? 
let me ask the question again. Between Sunday and Wednesday, how much time do you spend in the Word? And you know what it boils down to, don't you? Well, we're not spending any time in the Word. Now, may I, I'm going to leave that conversation and just talk to you. Can I, can I just be so bold as to say, if you don't have any appetite for the Word of God, and then you come to the house of God, and you expect to be fed, like you really want it, and you expect to be fed, I'm going to tell you right now, Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist would have trouble feeding you. Because you don't have an appetite for the Word of God. Oh, yes, we want to come to church and we don't want to hear a bunch of messing around. We want the Word of God. You got the Bible in six days between services. How much time are you spending in that Bible? Beloved. <laughs> that fit in there really nice, didn't it? How much time are you spending in that Word? Or let's put it this way. How much time are you exercising in the Word to build up yourself on the most holy faith? Instead of hoping that somebody else will build up your faith, how about taking the personal responsibility yourself to build up yourself on the most holy faith? I'm not in the shape I used to be. I long for the day when my wife used to come up and say, nice, nice. But I was exercising. I was doing push-ups and I was lifting weights and sort of. And I was doing this kind of stuff. Now she comes up and said, what happened? You know, I wish that was different now. But there's only one person that can do something about it. Isn't that right? And it's me. And if I'm not going to put myself, which I'm not, but if I'm not going to put myself through what it takes to get built up, then I'm just going to have to live with where I am. And if you're not willing to build up yourself on the most holy faith by exercising the Word of God, don't you blame a preacher because you're not getting fed. That ain't going to fly. It's a matter of personal responsibility, beloved. You build up yourself on the most holy faith. And you can't, listen to me please, you cannot love the Word of God more and not love God more. You cannot love the Word of God more and not love God more. You cannot feast on the Word of God. You cannot exercise in the Word of God and think less of God. You'll think more of God. And your love for Him will be maintained, yea, will grow. It's amazing to me how many people admit, now I'm going to say it this way, I haven't heard anybody say it this clearly, but it's amazing to me how people, once they fall in love with the Word of God, and they're living in the Bible apart from Sunday, how much better preacher their preacher becomes. When he may not be doing one solitary thing different, it's just that their appetite is now there. Is everybody with me here? Beloved, keep yourselves in love of God. What are we supposed to do in these? Uh, I wish preachers would preach on this. What are we supposed to do in these troublesome times, these unprecedented days? What are we supposed to do with the world growing wild? Well, let's start with this. Jesus did love him. Love him. Well, it's easy to say, get in the Word. I said get in the Word. It is a giant step to keeping yourself in the love of God. Be in the Word. 1991, I'm listening to David Gibbs tell a story. 1991, I've been pastor of Southwest Baptist Church 11 months. First Sunday of April. 
and he's preaching and he's talking about his partner uh, flying an airplane and his partner said, David, what's the most important book in the world? And he said, well, it's the Bible. And his partner started challenging him. Then when are you going to start reading it like it's the most important book in the world? Well, I have to read law cases and law books and law this and this. What's the most important book in the world? It's the Bible. When are you going to start reading it? And he's telling that story. And I am ceased thinking about David Gibbs. And I can only hear God speaking to my own heart. I, I didn't hear any voices, nothing weird going on. But I became aware... Brother Bill, I'm using the Bible so I'll have something to say to them. And I was not taking the Bible so God would speak to me. When he gave the invitation, I was the first one at the altar and made a commitment to put my face in the Bible an hour a day and to read the Word of God and have the Word of God speak to my heart. I can just tell you right now, my wife has testified that that it uh, signaled quite a change in her husband. Well, amazing. I said, now, isn't that amazing? Start taking in big doses of the Word of God, and it'll change your life. Come on, the choir got up and sang, God's Word changes life. Amen! But then somebody admits, well, I started living in the Bible, and it changed everything. Wow. Well, no, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. Live in the Bible. Six days a week since 1991. Right now I've got a little more time not pastoring, not being the president of the college and all of that. And so five times a year I'm through the Bible. Five times a year. I'll fight for my time to have my Bible reading. Five times a year. Well, if I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've lived a fairly busy life. You can ask the little lady over here. But an hour a day in the Word of God. And it becomes more precious <laughs> and more precious, and more precious, and I keep marking stuff and saying, i got to preach that sometime, and so far I'm going to have to live time about 120 to preach everything that I'm seeing that needs to be preached, except it'll have to be longer than that because there's more in there than I'll preach or know in five lifetimes. Does everybody listen to this? Are you in the Word? Are you reading the Bible? How about we take little devotionals and put them in a drawer and forget them or throw them in the trash and get your Bible and read. Open thou mine eyes, Psalm 119. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law and read your Bible. You don't need a little devotional with a verse and a little poem and a little story and you had your quiet time. I'm sorry for being sarcastic. Just get your Bible and put your face in it and ask God to help you and read it and read it. I don't understand everything. No. <laughs> well, of course you don't understand everything. I don't understand everything. I got stuff marked in my Bible right now. I've got to go back at that limited God I preached about last night. You know how long I got hung up on that from just reading? I've got to get back there and look at that. I've got to get back there and look at I could show you stuff like that everywhere. And then go back and get to it and dig into it. You'll come to church and you'll be amazed how your hunger and appetite for the Word of God has changed. Second thing he says in that verse is this. And I, I'm going to have to shorten this and cut her down. He says, praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Ladies and gentlemen, praying in the Holy Ghost has never had to do 
with some kind of a whammy that comes upon people, and the next thing you know, their tongue is uttering who knows what. That has never, ever been praying in the Holy Ghost. Ever. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Ghost? <laughs> well, don't try to make something weird out of it. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he said, now, uh, let's see, how, how's that? He talks about hope there. He's talking about hope, and he said, for, uh, if, if we hope for that which is seen, then it's not hope, but it's hope when we hope for that which we don't see, and it comes to pass. Well, anyway, that's a great verse. The next verse says, likewise also the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, our limitations, our limitations. We are limited people. Likewise also the, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, our weaknesses, our limitations, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now look, look at me just a second. The preacher and I prayed over an individual that's uh, in, in a bad physical way right now, today. And as we prayed, neither one of us told God what to do about the matter. How do we know what God's purpose is? How do we know what would best fit his purposes and his plan? Now, we can make intercession and we can make our requests known unto God, and we would request strength and restoration and such as that, but I don't know that that would be the best thing. You ask anybody that's gone to heaven and said, would it have been best to stay a little longer? Or is it best to go to heaven? Well, from their side, from that side, <laughs> there's nobody up there wanting to come back here. See? So I don't know what would most establish the will of God. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to pray about these things. Decision as a preacher, decisions as a, in our home, decisions in dealing with problems and situations of family members and people we love and care about. And we come before God, and here's what we're to do. Pray in the Holy Ghost. That means pray in dependence upon the power and the working and the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and he'll make intercession according to the will of God. To pray in the Spirit means to pray in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not on your thinking, your wisdom, your understanding, but his. See, that's praying in the Spirit. It doesn't have anything to do with this. <clears throat> Some wild feeling came over. No, it has to do with praying in utter dependence upon him. Probably the bigger question is, do you pray? It's not an accusation, it's a fair question. I, mean, I, I, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that denied that consistent, meaningful prayer in their life is one of the biggest challenges of the Christian life. Consistent, meaningful prayer. I'm not talking about saying your prayer and going to bed and not even thinking about what you're saying. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sitting down at the dinner table and blessing the food. I'm talking about meaningful communion with God. Would you listen to this statement? No love relationship thrives without meaningful communication. It doesn't. 
Sandra and I have been married 55 years. We can live in the same house, eat at the same table, sleep in the same bed, and become total strangers without meaningful communication. Yes or no, friend? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now look at these children. Stand up here, Micah. Come here. Come up here. Come over here. Now you stand up right here. Connor is, how old did you say you were? 14. 14 years old, and you're nine. Oh, man, I'm thinking about when Samuel, our son, was nine years old. And from the time, well, yeah, I mean, way little. He and Dad, just like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, it was so much fun. Just a great time. Then he turned 14. And if I wasn't afraid of this going on YouTube, I'd slap him upside the head. But I'm afraid I'd get, I'll probably be in prison tomorrow, you know, stuff like that. And you think, what's going on here? It happens, doesn't it? And you can have a child that you love, that you've nurtured, that you've raised up, and they're going to go through changes of life like we have had to and continue to have to go through various changes in our life. And if we don't keep the line of communication wide open, the next thing you know, you don't even know the kid that's sitting at your table that you used to be so close to. I'm telling it right, friend. I know this is right. Our first child was a girl, Cindy. Oh, she was daddy's girl. Good night. It was more fun. Man, oh, man. She turned about your age. I said to her, who's that kid in Cindy's bedroom in there? And Cindy and I went for this time where it was just like this, just like this. My girl, I mean, my, our, our number one child, and, you know, our, uh, she was daddy's girl. Still is. She's 52 years old now. She's still daddy's girl. And, and just like this. But we had to sit down and realize, I, I thought she was thinking one way. She helped me understand that. Anyway. She thought I meant this and was thinking this way. No, Cindy, that's not how I'm thinking. That's not how I feel. And once we started spending time talking and understanding each other, she's daddy's girl again. Yeah. No love relationship thrives without meaningful communion. None. My wife and I went on it. You guys sat down. Went on a preaching trip one time, and my wife had some stuff in her head and I mean, I was down in Costa Rica preaching, was preaching in the morning and preaching at night and, and up talking. You know why I had to sit up and talk with her for two hours a night or till two in the morning and stuff like that and then get up at five in the morning, get ready to preach and all that? You know why I went through that for three or four days? You know why? Because I hadn't been communicating with her like I said. Doing this, going here, going there, and the communication just wasn't there. She's thinking this way and that way and none of it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't on course, but it wasn't. All right, what's the matter with you, woman? It's I hadn't been working at communication. No love relationship. If we can understand that on the human level, I wonder why we think we can treat God the way we do in prayer sometime and expect him to be so close to us. Amen. I wonder why we understand that on the human level, but when God seems so distant and our prayers aren't, it's like we're talking to a wall. I wonder why we think it's always God's problem. Huh? No. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and shut thy door, 
and thy father which seeth thee in secret shall reward thee openly. I'm about up to here with people saying, I pray when I jog. <laughs> That's your prayer time. That's a little bit different than closing the door to the closet, isn't it? And I know you're looking at me like we couldn't get in our closet. Yeah, I understand. But a place where you're alone with God, that's the point. Is everybody with me here? I, I pray when I'm driving. Well, in most places of the country, you're crazy not to be praying while you're driving. But that's hardly, it can serve as your communion with the Lord. Is everybody with me here? And Jesus made it very clear. Enter into thy closet, shut the door, shut everything and everyone else out. Be still and know that I am God. Stop all the rackets. Stop all the noise. Turn off the music. Leave the phone out of the picture and get alone with God. He wants to know you. And He wants you to know His presence. I'm done. You can't spend time with God and not love Him more. You can't. You simply cannot. It is impossible. Well, I mean, I have my pro time, and I don't feel closer to God. Well, <laughs> I'd say your prayer time is just what you call it. Not really what's happening. Because you can't be in the presence of God and not love Him more. You can't know him and communion with him. You can't shut stuff out and shut your mind down and be still and know the presence of God and commune with him in worship, in praise, in adoration. Yes, he's worthy. He's not just going to be worthy over in the book of Revelation 4 and 5. He's already worthy. And who ought to know that more than his children? Spend time with him and praise him. Read those psalms. They'll make you forget you're a Baptist and raise your hand and praise the Lord. Because he's worthy. He's amazing. And you want to meet with him? He'll meet with you. 46th Psalm got a hold of my heart. That Down at the end it says, be still, know that I'm God. And I just said, oh, there's so much noise. There's so much racket. There's so much to distract. And I remember saying, oh God, I want to, this happened earlier in the summer. Oh God, I want, I want to know your presence. And I remember thinking about the high and lofty nature of God. And I was in there in the office and I, either the wife was in the other part of the house or she might not even been home. I don't remember. And I remember down there and I didn't hear cars, traffic, airplanes, nothing. No TV on, no radio, no nothing. Just there. And I said, God, help my brain to stop and shut down. Be still. And I don't, I don't mean to promote some kind of experience, but Brother Bill, I was just overwhelmed that the God who is high above all the nations and His glory is above the heavens would meet with one man in Oklahoma, to the point, you know, I, I just remember it was my face on the carpet saying, he's here, I know he's here. I didn't look around, I'm not talking about a weird experience. He wants us to be still and know that he's God. What do you think that means? Do you do that every day? 
Well, yeah, I don't, no, I don't do that every day. I'm, I'm not trying to put God in a box and say, I have to know that every day. I don't. But I do have to get alone every day. And I do have to be quiet and commune with him. And I do have to talk to him. And you cannot, you cannot have meaningful communion with God and not love him more. You cannot. Beloved, keep yourselves in love with God in the word, in prayer, anticipating his coming and caring about those he cares about. Let's stand together, shall we? I thank God for that day in 1991 when my heart got under conviction. Time with God in the Word enhances, accommodates, fosters time with God in prayer. Oh God, you know this people. This is not an indictment nor an accusation against anyone. But Jude said, it was needful for me to exhort you. And he talked about the confusion of the times, and then he zeroed in on, beloved, keep yourselves in love with God. Oh, how true. We can't do anything to make you love us. You loved us while we were yet sinners. You love us in our most wayward state as your children, just like many of us have loved our own children in the most difficult of times. God, I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who need to get down and do what Sam Davison did. 30 years ago, this past April. Oh God, I'm going to spend time in your word. Whatever else I have to rearrange, whatever I have to be deprived of, I've got to spend time in your word. Oh God, I need communion with you. I can't love you more without talking to you and you talking to me. I need communion it's two-way communion, fellowship. If there are people in this room that know their love for God, they may say, well, it happened when that event happened or that event happened, and since then my love for God, and they find people to point to or circumstances to point to that rob them of their love. Oh, the point is missed unless we understand what Jude is saying. When he says, no, no, none of those circumstances suffice as an excuse, beloved. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Build up yourself on the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Ghost. It will see you through any circumstance. May there not be pride standing in the way. If there's a need for that kind of commitment, then during this invitation, may it be done, Lord. 
Might your Holy Spirit be at work in Jesus' name.